millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Shakespeare's The Tempest opens, naturally enough, with a tempest, a storm that strikes the ship of men returning to Italy after the wedding of Alonzo's daughter. Early in Act Two... Gonzalo, who's the advisor to Alonso, the king of Naples, speaks about the beauty of the island they are shipwrecked on. In the background of this clip, you're going to hear Sebastian and Antonio laughing at Gonzalo's expense. It is foul weather in the soil, good sir, when you are cloudy. Foul weather? Very foul. Had I plantation of this isle, my lord? He'd sow it with nettle seed. Or docks or mallets. And were the king, aunt, what would I do? Escape being drunk for want of wine. In the Commonwealth, I would by contraries execute all things. For no kind of traffic would I admit, no name of magistrate, letters should not be known, riches, poverty, and use of service, none, contract, succession, born, bound of land, tilt, vineyard none no use of metal corn or wine or oil no occupation all men idle all and women too (laughs) but innocent and pure no sovereignty and yet he would be king of the latter end of his commonwealth forgets the beginning all things in common nature should produce without sweat or endeavor Treason, felony, sword, pike, knife, gun, or need of any engine would I not have. But nature should bring forth of its own kind, all foison, all abundance, to feed my innocent people. No marrying among his subjects. Oh, none, man. All idle, whores and knaves. I would, with such perfection govern, sir, to excel the golden age. Save his majesty! Long live Gonzalo! And... Do you mark me, sir? Prithee, no more. Thou dost talk nothing to me. That was Gonzalo, played by Joseph Meidel in Royal Shakespeare Company's 2017 production of The Tempest. Heidi, welcome to the show, The Play's the Thing. I'm so glad to be here. I love talking about this play. Me too. And we had a good time last week. This is... Act two of The Tempest, we will be here for five more episodes, and we are discussing one of Shakespeare's last plays. I, I, I wanted to play that clip at the beginning, Heidi, because I wanted to ask you about it. Gonzalo is this wise advisor to the king. We've been shipwrecked upon the island with these men who are kind of, um, they're not good guys. We're going to find out pretty quickly. And my question is, this picture that Gonzalo paints at the top of Act Two, 
are we supposed to take this seriously? Or is this, is this Shakespeare painting castles in the air? Or what exactly are we supposed to do with this beautiful speech by Gonzalo about the kind of world that he would create if he had the capacity on this island? Sure. It's, it's a good question and a, a question for the ages. A lot of ink has been spilt on that very question, as we both know. What is it? What kind of social order are we talking about here on this mysterious mm. island? What kind of society? This, this untouched land, so to speak, at least for Europeans who are landing there, to them, this is a land of possibility. This is a land in which, you know, nothing has been architecture isn't there. There's in the Europeans' mind, in the settlers' mind, in the explorers' mind, there's this sense of infinite possibility. We can make something here that could mm-hmm. potentially meet our ideals without having to destroy an old social order. Um, and there's something about that that's just appealing to the human soul. Uh, but what Gonzalo's describing here is a return to Eden. He's talking about the land producing without any effort at all. No civilization Uh needed. Not even, and he's not talking about technologies. He's just saying nothing. If I was the king here, I would just bring people here and it would just come up all on its own. It's a very Edenic vision Mm -hmm. uh, and completely unrealistic. So I don't know. (laughs) What do you, what do you make of it? I, I do think it's unrealistic also. And yet I think we're supposed to take it seriously because because of the speaker, there's something about Gonzalo that is so compelling. There's an, there's an honesty about him. And even though he's the wisest of the Italian men, there's a little bit of a naivete about him. And for that reason, I, I do want to take him seriously. He deserves a hearing, though I, I would imagine the actor kind of playing this with a wink in his eye. Like we know what I'm saying is not really a possibility. We, we can't, we can't create, as you said, um, an Island that requires no work for it to produce fruit. We know that that's not possible, but Oh, isn't it wonderful to think about such a thing? And these men that are returning to Italy seem so lost without civilization. Mm -hmm. They seem, they seem both lost and they also seem sort of unfettered by law, as we'll see later on in the scene that, that Mm -hmm. civilization is actually great. Good for these men. I think Gonzalo would do just fine in such a situation. He would work hard. He would contribute to a kind of like communist order and he wouldn't need much prompting the other men, though, I think would be just absolutely, they would, they would wreck the whole idea. Right. So in a lot of ways, then we're back to what we talked about uh, in the last podcast, which is this ideal of the city explored by Plato, right? What if you just had virtuous men in the city? Mm. What if, mm-hmm. right? And that, that was, you know, in the Republic, that's Plato's original proposal, uh, to Glaucon is let's just create virtuous men and then put them all together to live together. And then Glaucon says, but what about the luxuries? You know, the city that you're describing sounds too ascetic. I mean, he wouldn't have Mm. used that word. That's an anachronism, but uh, 
because that's a reference to later Christian uh, thought. But that's essentially what he's saying is then, you know, they wouldn't have any luxuries. They wouldn't be able to go to the theater and they wouldn't be able to have feasts. And isn't that a good thing, Socrates? Mm. And Socrates' response is, okay, so now let's put these virtuous citizens in a city with all of these luxuries of civilization. What happens to the city? Mm. Right? And so that, I mean, your point is, you know, whether Shakespeare intended this to be kind of an experiment in the Republic, I don't know. We have no idea. But it works, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. To your point, you have a virtuous man, Gonzalo, uh, who, sure, he could live in Utopia. He could live in Eden, you know. He'd do fine. He'd do but, fine. But would, but then, you know, you have the counterpoint lurking behind him, these two, you know, creatures of the id, right? <laughs> yeah, right, uh, right. Sebastian and Antonio who are mocking him uh-huh. um, and who keep using colloquialisms like modern speech for their time. For us, it's antiquated. But for them, you know, Gonzalo's talking in these generalities and abstractions uh, and they are, they're, you know, kind of throwing in their, um, their ugliness and corrupting yeah. his beautiful vision. Yeah. I, I want to say that Joseph Midell, who was playing Gonzalo in this production, um, fittingly is from Savannah, Georgia, which is, oh. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. And so I think that the most virtuous character being from Georgia, I think is absolutely <laughs> <laughs> an apt casting choice. <laughs> How have you seen Gonzalo portrayed? Is he, uh, in, you know, in various productions? I think I find him an intriguing character because like you pointed out, because of his, uh, his wisdom and his naivete on, on, you know, is he a ridiculous man? Is he a virtuous mm. man? Is he a man to be admired? Is he a man to kind of be like ignored or dismissed because he's too pie in the sky? And what do you, what do you think? How hey, do you I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I've seen, but I want to ask you first, Heidi, if you're a casting director, how do you cast him? Well, I like think just based on what you know, right? the, I think you, so here's, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but here's how, whenever I have read this play, the first historical character that I think of connected to Gonzalo, because, largely because of this scene in this speech, is Sir Thomas More. I always think of him um, with his vision of utopia. I was just going to say, how fitting, because he wrote a, like the first utopia. Yes, he wrote utopia. That's where we get this idea of utopia that didn't exist until Sir Thomas More, who was an advisor uh, to King Henry VIII. Um, so that would have been not contemporary to Shakespeare, but recently in his mind. And so I don't know, I have no idea if he based this character on Sir Thomas More or not. But there is this idea of the ideal statesman who still can't quite connect to reality because yeah. utopia is completely unrealistic. There's no way that it could he, anybody could ever build utopia, but Sir Thomas More seemed to take it very seriously. He seemed to be proposing it as a real option. Yeah, and, he does. He does. The utopia, Thomas More utopia, th- what's so intriguing about it is it does seem at the same time completely far-flung. This would never work, but there's so many practicalities kind of seasoning the the utopian vision that you think maybe he is taking this seriously maybe this is like a kind of a recipe for what sir thomas more imagines a perfect world might look like right i think he does and he's willing to die for it i mean he was martyred uh for resisting henry the eighth and 
or many consider him a martyr. Some consider him just like a crazy guy who brought it on himself. So, I mean, he's, he's a bit uh, controversial in the historical record, but he did believe in the ideal. He did and, believe in the ideal. And he would not compromise in order to become a successful man or to, rem- or to maintain his level of success. He was successful and he lost it because he stood for what he believed in the face of the king. And uh, of course, that's not here with Gonzalo in the play, but that there is just this similarity, I think, in the cast of character. And so I, I have seen performances in which he's portrayed as a comic character, but I don't think that gets to his heart. I agree, especially because he is the man who basically saved Prospero and Miranda from his from Prospero's conflict with his brother. So I, I think to play him as a comic character would undercut the real power of his character, that he's someone who is willing to kind of risk his own life and reputation to preserve a good man and his daughter. So what I have seen is that Prospero is played, generally speaking, by an older man who's got some gray in his beard and some gray in his temples and has the ability to be funny, like has a wink in his eye. But I've not seen him performed comically. It it may be... With you said Prospero, but did you, you said sorry, Prospero, but Gonzalo. you meant Gonzalo. Meant Gonzalo. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's what, exactly what I meant. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I think casting as just a comic character would be a very bad decision. It would take the sort of moral ballast out of that half of the play, out of the Italian half of the play. And the Italian half of the play desperately <laughs> needs some moral ballast because mm-hmm. the men who are returning from Italy we find out later in act two, and I'd like to talk about that. Um, they're already beginning to conspire against each other. No sooner have they landed on the island, they're beginning to conspire against each other so that when they do arrive back in Italy, which is far from a foregone conclusion, given their ineptness, um, so that when they arrive back in Italy, they will be able to um, achieve a higher position. Right. And, to, and, and the magic of, Prospero begins to kind of try to weave some peace between these men, despite the Italian men's best efforts to cut each other's throats. Right. Yeah, I think that that's true. And I think what he's proposing here, Gonzalo is proposing here, is that original, non-luxurious, platonic ideal. Mm Mm-hmm living close to the land, letting the land produce for us, living in, in kind of unity and solidarity with this land. Um, but I don't think he really takes into account, as, you, as you're pointing out, what do you make of his interaction then with those two jokers who are mocking him? You know, is he missing anything, Gonzalo? <laughs> I think he's I think he's just kind of he's brushing them off. I don't I I don't think he takes them terribly seriously because they're just oh they're so acerbic. They drive me crazy from the beginning. So so we're talking about Sebastian and Antonio. Yes. 
um, they're the ones who are kind of carping in the background of the clip that they played. And after the scene that we played, Sebastian and Antonio are going to begin to conspire against Alonzo, who has fallen asleep. And wouldn't it be easy, they think, if they just pulled their swords and ran him through and they could get away with it. They could get away with it. And so then when they're rescued, returned to Italy, oh, they can inherit his position. But now Prospero steps in through Ariel and kind of when it begins to whisper sweet nothings in their ear, Alonzo wakes up when their swords are drawn and they quickly make excuses for what's happened. Oh, there's no harm here. Look away, look away. And their danger is sort of averted. But we see really quickly um, that these two men are up to no good. And if we're going to have any peace on the island, it's probably going to come through either Prospero's magic or it's going to come through Gonzalo's wisdom. Right, right. I think so. And I... I think to go back to, I really, really loved, I've been thinking all week about uh, your comments last week um, about the soul and about Caliban and Ariel kind of representing these two horses of the soul that lead the charity. Yeah. So listeners go back and, and if you missed that, go listen to that. Tim does a fabulous job talking about that, about how on the island, on this individual island, we have these two native magical kind of spirits um, or creatures, Caliban, uh, who represents the darkness of the soul in Freudian terms, the id, and then Ariel, kind of this super ego idea, or excuse me, the ego idea, wants to do good, but needs to be led to it, right? Needs to be freed in order to do good. Uh, and how those warring forces already exist on the island. And now, I think, as I've been thinking this week, reading this scene, it opened up this scene to me, Tim, because I had never noticed before. That's exactly mirrored in the Italian half. Huh. Right? So you have these, this particular scene, right, is in a mirror to that scene with Caliban uh, and Ariel and Prospero. Here you have Gonzalo who kind of fills that ego part, yeah. uh, the, the, the white horse part, the, the, it, the kind of like noble, noble. The, as you say, the moral, the moral compass, yeah. right? The nobility, the potential for nobility. Uh, for the desire for good. But then you also have, on the other hand, these two conspiring characters. And I find it compelling that it's two of them because they tempt each other to do evil um, and to create civil war, brother against brother. So you have just like this constant multiple levels of division, of civil war. Already on the island, you've got Caliban uh, and Ariel. Even though they're not necessarily against each other, they represent these two different forces. Then you've got brother against brother twice uh, with Alonzo and Sebastian. And then, is that right? No, so Alonzo. And then Prospero and Antonio. So there's that civil war and that conflict, that division. Uh, and then there's the two bad younger brother prodigal types who are trying to destroy their older brothers. Um, And the counterpoint to them is Gonzalo, who has this vision for a utopian world uh, that might be unrealistic, but is also very beautiful. And so you have these multiple levels of division on this supposedly untouched island, 
that should be a paradise. It should be an Eden. It should be yeah. this return to uh, to innocence. But instead, it's corrupted at every level just when anybody sets foot on it. Yeah. Yeah. I Shakespeare is really remarkable that he, mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about Plato's Republic, which is, it, Plato does not discuss the Republic as if it were a utopia, but it is no, certainly an ideal. I mean, there, it's the, the beginning of the Republic is we learn that the conversation that Socrates is going to have with his interlocutors is a conversation about the soul, but it's also, and, and the rightly ordered soul, but it's also in some way a conversation about the city and the rightly ordered city. And throughout the Republic, there's this kind of question of like, okay, wait, what? it seems like we're talking about a city this whole time, but are we talking about the soul? So anyway. Right, well, he so, says the city is like the man. Yes, right. So the Tempest seems to kind of like pull ideas from Plato's Republic. I do think that there is, through the mouth of Gonzalo, there is this hearkening to the u- later utopias like Sir Thomas More. And there's another, there's another kind of a little bit of an obscure reference that a, a contemporary reader might not get, which is um, from a French writer, Montaigne, who's mm. one of the most famous essayists in the history of the West. He, in 1603, so right around the same time that The Tempest is published, a translation of his essays, of Montaigne's essays, uh, becomes available in England. And one of the essays is called Of Cannibalism. What's really interesting is Montaigne is basically recounting in this essay a report given, I think, I don't know, by a European who lived in a tribe for 10 to 12 years. And the tribe had a very, very sophisticated system of justice, civilization, all of these things. But they were cannibals in the sense that when they defeated their enemies on the battlefield, they would eat their enemies' bodies in this kind of ceremonial way. So Montaigne is is pointing out, look, in the history of kind of like our civilization, beginning with the Greeks, when we don't understand another civilization, we we attach a name to them. So for the Greeks, it was the barbarians. When they didn't understand a foreign culture, they called them the barbarians. Now says Montaigne, we're doing the exact same thing. We point at this tribe of cannibals and we call them the cannibals, which is like the worst epithet you could like possibly throw at somebody. He's a cannibal. But if you actually look at their civilization, says Montaigne, wow, it's really advanced. It's really, in a lot of ways, it's more advanced and more kind of just than our civilization is because the sort of tortures that we perform in war are kind of incredible. It makes cannibalism look sort of mild. So scholars have pointed out that it looks like Shakespeare is making references to this Montaigne essay of cannibalism. And he's asking a question whether or not the kind of civilization 
that he lives in, that Shakespeare lives in in England, um, everyone loves to extol the virtues and the incredible advancements of England in the early 1600s. But is it really so advanced? Isn't Montaigne right? Isn't there something? Aren't we just kind of like glorifying ourselves because we're looking at it through our eyes and condemning these other kind of what we perceive to be less advanced civilizations, but are they so less advanced or are we just finding the one thing that we find abhorrent cannibalism and, and, and tasting their entire world and life with that, with that epithet. Right. Oh, that's so good. I, I'm glad you brought up Montaigne because Montaigne is remembered now, uh, and I think fairly, for being in many ways very anti-civilization. He kind of called for this return to the native lifestyle and let's throw off all the fetters and the slavery of modern civilization, you know, speaking of his own time, and let's return to the land. So do you remember when Pandora, when that, um, what movie is that? It's not called Pandora. Avatar. And that's what it is. Good. Thank you. Go. When Avatar came out, it had this idealized land, right? Pandora. They won't go to this unspoiled planet. It's like an Eden. It's perfect. Everyone's living in harmony with the land. Uh, and, and then along comes big bad civilization and tries to destroy it, right? That's Montaigne's philosophy. He would have loved that movie. Uh, mm-hmm. And everybody loved that movie. But there was this thing that happened, and I'm fascinated by this. I'm I think about this all the time. There was this phenomenon that happened after the movie came out when people were actually going, this was a, an epidemic. People were going to counselors. They were going to therapy because they had fallen so in love with Pandora and they wanted to be in it. Stop. I'm serious. It was like, because I, I was out of grad school at the time, but I was still following along these academic journals for psychology. And there's this whole, like people were talking about this for like a year. Uh, therapists were writing about this. They're doing research no on this. Kidding. They called it the Pandora effect. So people were going and talking to therapists about, I saw Avatar. I fell in love with this world and I want to be part of it. Right. So Montaigne was very, he would have, said, I get that, right? He would have been one of the people in therapy with the Pandora effect. Uh And he wrote all these essays about it. And and they're good. They're good essays. He calls out the the evils of civilization. And, you know, similar kind of people like you and I do this all the time. You open up First Things Magazine, which I read religiously, it has the same kind of essays in it, right? So, and that's not wrong. There is an evil to uh, civilization that's inherent within it. But Shakespeare doesn't simplify it like that. He doesn't make this a cautionary tale. And it's interesting because he, one of the keys to interpreting Shakespeare, is, especially in his comedies, is to kind of look for what scholars call uh, the green world. Think, think of Midsummer Night's Dream, in which the, uh, the city has all these unjust laws. And so the people go out into the green world where magical creatures are and good things happen there. And then uh, when they get kind of sucked into this green world or brought into this green world, then a renewal happens, a redemption happens to them, and then they can go back into this field. Yes, as you like, it's the same way. There's this green world tool. What I think Shakespeare's doing, which is brilliant here, and this is why it's one of his most complex plays, is he's like, okay, let's go into the green world and let's see if maybe, maybe, just maybe, it's not just about the world. 
mm-hmm. but the inhabitants of the world. Maybe it is the dividing line of good and evil that goes through every heart. Maybe there is no utopia. Maybe we bring our own corruption to whatever place we go and we have to set things right. So he is in some ways subverting his own green world ideal in this play, and I love it. And I think Avatar would have been a better movie if it wasn't just such a cautionary tale, if it wasn't just so black and white, right? If Montaigne wasn't just like, the green world is good and civilization is bad. Is that really the way it is? Right. Yeah. I remember going to see Avatar. That movie had so much promise and it drove me crazy because you could tell literally within one second who a bad guy was and who the good guys were. The bad guys either wore suits or army fatigues. Like that was it. Yeah. If they wore those two outfits, they were a bad guy. It's just like, this is just so absurd. It's so... It's so flat. It's so immature. You know, it's so trite. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. Shakespeare is never trite. Yeah. This play is so complex because of that. I think there's something about the green world. I'm just going to say the same thing that you said in different ways, Heidi. There's something about this green world that Shakespeare creates that it does it does kind of invoke our idealism. There's something about Gonzalo's words at the beginning that we hear them and that we 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 want to kind of be like the brothers who are kind of snickering on the side but there's also something so compelling about that vision it's the world that we all want to live in and so to snicker at it and to not take it seriously even though we know that it's not a realistic picture it's not a picture that could actually work to snicker at it is like, I don't know, it just feels like it would defile me if I snickered at it. If I came like the brothers who were standing off to the side making jokes about Gonzalo's picture, it's, it's not a thing to be laughed at. Right. Well, it's, it is the hidden longing within each of us, right? It is the true, the, it's Eden. It's, it's the kingdom of God. It's the end of the last battle. It's the planet Paralandra, right? It's, it's this, it's Pandora. Like Pandora's a good place. The problem is, is that, is the assumption that a good place will redeem the people that live there. Right, right. Yeah, that's the whole question. Right. That's the whole question right, right there. Like we all want to return to a state of innocence to the, or, or attain to the full redemption for which, we will someday yeah. be brought into fellowship with each other and with God. And I think that that's the longing you're talking about, you know, what Lewis calls the exactly. inconsolable secret. I do want to go back to Eden. I belong in Eden. Eden was made for me and I for it. Mm. But after the fall, then we, we will corrupt Eden. All of us. Yeah. Because that's the dividing line of good and evil that goes through every human heart. And I think Shakespeare gets that so well in this play. And, and I just, I love that. Heidi, I want to transition us into mm. the second scene of yeah. Act Two, um, in which we're going to meet a couple of these characters that we have not met before. Uh, Trinculo being one of them, who's this kind of jester figure, and Stefano, who's the drunk butler. 
they've they've washed up on a different part of the island and who do they discover they discover caliban caliban Caliban, to refresh everybody's memory his you know this this slave to prospero kind of filled with earthly desires and he's really angry at prospero he would like nothing more than to be free of prospero by killing him um so he's alone before we listen to this clip, there's even something, we're not going to hear it in the clip, there's even something about Caliban. He's brutish in so many ways. He's, um, I mean, he wants to rape Miranda, and he makes that really clear. There's this other side of Caliban that he has this, he dreams, and his dreams are full of like gold and longing for an ideal. And I think it's interesting to kind of go to the point that we're making, that the utopian vision is always kind of tainted by the dividing line that goes through the human heart, as you've been saying, Heidi. And even Shakespeare is going to say the opposite of true. Even this figure of Caliban, who's in many ways, he's kind of a beast. Even his heart has these, there's a silver lining there. There's this, this, craving for a different sort of world that kind of peeks through the blood and the grime that we see over and over with Caliban. Right, right. Well, and as you pointed out, there is this pathos to him. There's, like Shakespeare could have written him very differently. He could have written this, uh, he could have written Caliban with no pathos. Shakespeare knows how to write, yeah. right? Like he could have, <laughs> like he could have made he him. He could have been Iago. Yes. Could have made him this monster that you love to hate. Yeah. But as he did with Shylock, he writes into him this deep sadness that, and, and sense of loss that we all respond to, right? We all recognize. And I think that's brilliant on Shakespeare's part because in having compassion on Calvin, as we've been talking, the city is like the man, then we're having compassion on our own darkness mm. in our own souls, right? While still making the judgment that it is wrong to indulge that darkness. But we see here Caliban corrupted by civilization. He's so easily tempted and he so easily falls here. Yeah, 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 in the scene. So the scene that I'm going to play is um, Trinculo kind of stumbling upon Caliban. Caliban has hidden himself because he heard someone coming, so he hides himself. And Trinculo sees him and he doesn't quite know what kind of creature this is. Legged like a man. Fins like arms. Warm are my truth. I do now let loose my opinion. Hold it no longer. This is no fish. Thank you. <laughs> the actor that was playing Trinculo is a guy named Simon Trinder. And if you guys are going to watch a production, I really encourage you to watch the YouTube production of the RSC 2017 version of The Tempest because Stephen Trinder as Trinculo almost steals the entire show. He's absolutely hysterically funny. 
they make this interesting decision in the production, Heidi, that Tranquilo comes out and he's dressed like a clown. He has clown paint on his face and he has these kind of like horns for hair and he's got these big plaid trousers that he's wearing. And it's completely does not fit any of the other characters. But Stephen Stephen Trinder, the actor, is just so hysterically funny that you don't even care because you just want to watch him do his thing. (laughs) So anyway, it's a great... I keep recommending this production because, number one, it's just of an extraordinary high quality. And number two, you have to pay a dime for it. It's on YouTube. Watch it while you can. Brilliant. Yeah, it's really great. Okay, so... Heidi, we meet these other, this other group of characters. We meet Caliban. We meet Trinculo. We'll soon meet Stefano, the drunk butler. Um, is, it, is it just time for comic relief here in Act 2, Scene 2, Heidi? Is, is, is Shakespeare doing something more with this kind of like sidebar story? Or oh, do we just need a relief from all of the kind of plotting and utopia mm. building on the rest of the island? Sure. I mean, I think it's probably both. And uh, there is, I mean, this is a funny scene. Whenever it's performed, it gets a lot of laughs. And probably, as you're pointing out, because it, it is relief, right? There's finally something to laugh at. This is a comedy. So we're supposed yeah. to laugh. Like, we have to laugh at some point in the comedy. Um, but there is a lot going on in this scene. There is more to it than uh, than just these low-born comic characters mm-hmm. getting Caliban drunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's what's going on on the surface. And that is part of what's going on in the deeper part too, that Caliban's getting drunk. Like he has, he now has access to the corrupting forces of civilization, mm-hmm. not the ennobling forces of civilization mm-hmm. as Prospero has given him and as he has rejected. And we've talked about that and the ambiguity of that. Uh, Prospero came with these ennobling things with books and and um, with uh, speech and language, and he gives he empowers Caliban to rise above his uh, lack of education, uh, and Caliban then rejects that opportunity, but he surely takes the wine that's offered to him, and now he he's been corrupted by yeah. civilization. It's interesting, Heidi, that. If you're reading the play, Caliban's lines are in meter and Trinculo and Stefano's lines are in prose. So we've talked about this in other episodes. It's worth talking about again. So in most editions of Shakespeare, if you have a left justified, if you have lines, let's say beneath Caliban, and his lines are left justified, and there's a meter to them. So it ends on a ragged right margin edge. That means that the character is speaking in meter. And that probably means that he was highborn. He's of some sort of nobility. Caliban is not highborn, but is he? I, I think right. the reason that he is speaking in meter as opposed to prose, which is unjustified right margin, or excuse me, unragged right margin is that Caliban has been taught by Prospero. Right. Prospero's highborn. Miranda, also highborn. Both of them speak in meter, and so it makes sense that Caliban also would speak in meter. 
Right. I agree. He has been educated to, uh, to speak like them. Uh, the effect that has on the reader is to take his words more seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. I think we should. I think that, uh, you know, there's that, that practical, there, there is an actual within the story, within the world of the story, a reason for the fact that he speaks in poetry rather than in prose. Um, and then there's also the, the thematic impact that that has, you know, the psychological impact that that has on us as the reader, which is to pay attention to his words. And he speaks these very uh, beautifully composed, corrupt mm-hmm. yeah that's very well said yep like like Nietzsche right Nietzsche and his beautiful writing and yet Uh the content of his writing is so corrupting on the soul um Caliban's of course is mitigated because he he is one character in a whole story and the whole story is what makes the impact on our souls and so it's dangerous to read Caliban's speech it's not going to ruin us by any means right right it is it is this very beautifully crafted poetry uh and the things that he says are sometimes truly evil and sometimes um just sad. Yeah. Yeah. Also interesting that almost as soon as Caliban meets Stefano, the drunk butler, he kind of employs Stefano as his master. And so Caliban is almost, I mean, no sooner has he separated himself from Prospero and hates being his slave, but in the very next scene, he kind of becomes the slave of Stefano. There's this sort of vacancy in him that he needs to have someone in charge of him. And I, I, to be honest, I don't know quite what to make of that. I have kind of ideas about why that would be the case for Caliban. But did you think about that, Heidi? Why, Why he so readily adopts Stefano as his master? Right. I mean, some of it's got to be because Stefano gives him wine, right? He gives mm-hmm. him, he gets him drunk. Uh, and this is one of the delicate explorations of this play, right? Within the cultural context in which Shakespeare is writing, there is an assumption that native cultures will be looking to the civilized European cultures to impose some kind of order on their chaos. And so that is underlying a lot of the contemplations of this particularly complex and quite brilliant play. Uh, So modern interpretations tend to condemn Shakespeare for this because it, it seems to have kind of a white savior mentality, even though he's undermining it and subverting it, it's still an underlying assumption that Caliban's, you know, going to accept the, this European uh, explorer as a leader immediately simply because he's European. And um, so there does seem to be an assumption on Shakespeare's part of the superiority of Western culture over native cultures. That is a common accusation leveled against this play. How would you respond to that? I, I would respond by, um, in the production that we've been talking about by the Royal Shakespeare Company, they cast Stefano as an Indian man. Hmm. And he's a delightful actor. And I, I think given England's history with 
India, I don't think that was just a haphazard choice. So if Shakespeare does suffer that accusation that it's the sort of like white man savior mentality in this relationship between Stefano and Caliban, what better way for a production company to kind of unravel that or pick that apart than by casting a really great Indian actor in that role and reversing this right. sort of like dynamic, the historical dynamic between England and India. I just think that's... So that's how really does that clever. change the scene then? What is it that you, th- that you see Caliban responding to in Stefano? Well, I think it takes some of that very awkward um, historical tension out of the room that if, if we're afraid that Shakespeare is saying, yeah, Caliban needs a master and that master is a white man. If we're worried about that accusation, which I think that's a fair thing to worry about. So do I. Um, what better way to kind of undercut that and sort of preserve the play from those kind of tensions, those sort of like historical tensions than by casting an Indian man. And it does it change the play? No, I don't think it changes the play. I don't think that the um, Stefano actor plays it differently. I mean, he doesn't make, you know, peculiar choices or anything like that in his acting, but it's sort of like the frame that is around the stage any sort of tension that is around the stage, I think it just helps dissolve that. Right. Well, I agree. And I think it goes, uh, taking the soul analogy works very, very well here in this scene. Uh, if, if we're kind of in that center circle of looking at the, uh, the city is like the man, the, the soul of the human, then Caliban is responding to, uh, if he represents the appetites, then he's going to respond and become the slave of whatever serves his appetites. Yeah. Whoever is there to give him something to, you know, feed his belly in the metaphorical and the literal sense, uh, that person is going to become your master. And that is a, a, a um, there's a psychological truth to that. If you're the kind of person who is led entirely by appetite, you become a slave very easily. And that I think is part of what Shakespeare's trying to get at here in this scene uh-huh. is how quickly, you know, there's, there's this ennobling influence of Prosper who's trying to get him to rise above the life of the belly. And Caliban's like, no, thank you. I actually will just serve the master that feeds my belly. Yeah. So uh, even taking away the colonial interpretation, this scene is consistent throughout. Yeah. All right, I've got another question about Prospero. Shakespeare's vision, we've been talking about kind of Shakespeare's vision of kind of like what a natural order would be. And we've talked in previous episodes that Shakespeare has this vision of nature, that nature is good in and of itself, but it must be tempered by and matured with the arts. It must be matured and brought to fruition by education. And my question is, is that the role that Prospero's art plays in this play? Is his magic kind of a a hyper-accelerated art being worked upon the souls of of these characters? Right. You're asking a very complicated question, as you know. And, and it's a I little bit. To hear, it's also a little bit loaded, <laughs> Heidi. I'm right? like asking this question 
And I'm like, gosh, that sounds like I've already formed a conviction. That was not a like. I know. (laughs) I know. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) I can't possibly answer that because it's as you as you very well know, and many of our listeners do as well. This is an ongoing conversation over many centuries since this play was first performed and put to paper. Um, The the nature of Prospero's magic. What is its purpose? Does it do good? Uh, is, is it just can a we, stage conceit right. or is there something yes. more to it? Can we take Prospero's word for it? You know, I have heard um, and I read an article on this several years ago. I can't remember who wrote it, but it was brilliant. It was in a literary journal and it was a an analysis of Prospero's uh, manipulations of the shipwrecked sailors compared to psychological experiments performed in Nazi death camps. Oh my. Oh it was my. brilliant. Uh-huh. And I mean, it absolutely went too far. Mm. But the point was very compelling that the way that Prospero acts upon these shipwrecked sailors claiming to do good to them and to bring about a redemptive result for the island, for his family, for his land, for his own leadership, mirrors in many ways psychological experimentation (laughs) in 20th century tyranny. Yeah. Right? So... I'm taking your question in a way different direction, I think, than you Good. intended. Good. But yeah, since I loaded it, that's totally right. fair, honey. Since I loaded it so heavily, you have every right to be like, I'm not going to answer that question, Tim. But I think that it is, I, I want our listeners to know how complex that question is. I didn't necessarily agree with this claim in the literary journal, but. Prospero does indeed use his art to manipulate human souls to his desired end. The question of whether or not that art becomes redemptive in the story is certainly open to interpretation. It is more than just civilization, though. It is more than just the kind of ennobling education of civilized society, I think. I think he goes way farther than that. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. So, so is his, my question was, is his magic sort of a concentrated civilizing art? And you're saying, I think it, he goes it past can't be that. just that. Yeah. It's I more think than it that. goes past that. And I think even within the world of the play, it's intended to be known that he goes past that, even from act one in the way that he treats Ariel. Because Ariel is his captive. Mm. And so he is not freeing the natural elements of the island in order to become more fully themselves, right? He is utilizing them to manipulate to his ends. Now, the and I think that has to be said. So no, I don't see Prospero's art as merely being kind of the ennobling, uh, the a representation of the liberal arts or that or classical education or all of the good things that we believe in. I I, I think Prospero goes past that. Um, yeah. I think though that you can make a case. 
I don't think that we have to believe that he is analogous to the Nazi death camps. I'm not saying that. I'm not necessarily advocating for that. But I am saying, I think from the beginning, we're intended to see that Prosper goes beyond just educating for the good of the society. What do you think, though? Well, I, I am thinking back to what we said last week. There's something about Prospero that he's, he's – I'm tempted to put him in a category called amoral more than like virtuous or, or immoral. immoral. I tend to think of him as sort of an amoral character, which kind of fits how I think Shakespeare thinks of his own task. How do I say this? Mm-hmm. Shakespeare can write a murder into a scene and not be guilty of murder, and thus he's amoral. I I don't want to claim that Shakespeare doesn't have see himself as having a moral task. I think he definitely does. But I I kind of think I see Prospero through the eyes of you know this is Shakespeare's last play. I do think it's somewhat autobiographical, and I tend to think of Prospero as being an amoral character. And thus, yeah, that's absolutely conducive with what you're saying. It's not just that he has a pure, he has purely noble and virtuous means and ends, meaning in his magic. Um, There's something, there's something that's, you can't just say it's for the good and you can't just say he's simply a good character. It's a lot more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. He's a puppet master. Yes, and the puppet master is yeah, and and the puppets are enacting deeds, and his relationship with those puppets is not neutral, and the deeds that they enact are not always morally neutral. Right, right. So I think a lot of the question of Prospero becomes: Does is Shakespeare casting? Does the play cast judgment on the puppet master, or does the play uphold the puppet master as necessary for an ordered society and an ordered soul? Because right. if we are using, this is where we're getting into some deep waters, right? And this is why the question of Prospero is ongoing uh, in literary criticism and philosophy and just people who are interested in truth, right? That is, you could make the claim that using the Platonic uh, or even the Freudian model, that Prospero is like the superego or the charioteer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is necessary. He has to be there in order to tame all the forces and harmonize them. And so that's part of his role. He's yeah. allowed to do whatever manipulating that needs to be done in order to bring the story, uh, the world of the story to its redemptive end. And, some, and so in some ways he has the freedom to play God and he must have that freedom. And we are in the position of say Moses in the desert uh, and with the Israelites shaking our fist at the, the mm-hmm. person who's actually trying to get us to the promised land, right? There's that case. But you can also make the case uh, like whoever did in this literary journal that he goes so far, far overreaches because he is uh, just a man. Yeah. And so, yeah. and, and, and way overreaches uh, his role as in becoming a humble man and mm. utilizing those things. He should have set them free a long time ago, come what may, right? So there's, I, you can, and I really just think you can make a case either way as a moral human. And, and we're kind of, we're toying with two different analogies. So one of them is the charioteer, the picture of the charioteer that we find in, Plato and the Phaedrus. 
And the charioteer, who has these two kind of like parts of his nature that he must learn to kind of govern and get to collaborate, the dark horse and the white horse, the charioteer is most definitely in Plato's eyes this is a story of how one becomes virtuous. The charioteer is trying to ride to heaven. And so if we're going to put Prospero in the charioteer's place, then he most definitely is a, how do I say it? He is a, we should be able to judge him and assess him according to whether or not he's being a virtuous character, a good character, whether or not his soul is on the way to heaven. But the other allegory that we're, the other analogy that we're using is puppet master. Mm -hmm. And should the puppet master be held accountable for the deeds of the puppets? And, And there's part of us that wants to say, no, he's, he can enact through the puppets good deeds and bad deeds, but his role is so different from that of the puppets that we can't kind of like take, um, we can't cast aspersions on him and neither can we praise him as a puppeteer for what he's enacting on this terrestrial plane. And I think, Heidi, it'll be interesting to, we've got three more acts to kind of see how our thoughts about Prospero right. develop as we go through. Because listeners are probably hearing us, like we're, we're kind of talking in these two different models. Mm-hmm. We're not sure which one best fits Prospero. Right. Maybe by the, maybe by the end of the play, we'll have stronger convictions about it. Right, right. I think maybe so, and I. But I think or maybe is, not. Maybe yeah. I find him more and more ambiguous the more I read. The first, I'd be curious when you first encountered this play. How did you feel about Prospero compared to now? I think I saw a production of it before I read it, and I think I the production really affected me because they played Prospero. Um. He was a very distant character. Huh. He was he was an aloof magician. And deist Prospero. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. He's a deist Prospero. And so I I was inclined to think of him, I think, kind of like almost a, on a semi-conscious level, as the second model. He's the puppeteer. But subsequent productions, which I've actually preferred, have really emphasized how his that very tender relationship that he has with Miranda and it both humanizes him. And it also creates this strange dynamic when Ariel and with Caliban show up that he can be so brutal with them. Right. So it, I, I prefer that second way of playing him, even though it does make him much more complicated, much more, much more, fraught and ambiguous a character because if he's aloof, if he's the puppet master and everything is just going to go his way and he's not really invested in that relationship with Miranda, well, it's easy to see him as kind of an, a deist. But if he's invested in the play, it's harder to see him as neutral. Mm-hmm. Heidi, let's put a bow on this episode. We've been going for about an hour and 15 minutes and we're now set up to enjoy act three of the tempest. Anything that you're looking for in act three? Uh, yeah. I mean, in act three, we, I'm looking for things to come to a head, uh, looking for some kind of turning point that's going to kind of break through the 
dreamlike nature of what's going on. Uh, one of the things I noticed about the first two acts of this play is that it's very hard to find, uh, to kind of put your weight on anything that's happening. There's, you're not even sure what Prospero is trying to do, mm. right? Because, which that's, because in act one, Miranda and Ferdinand fall in love. So why are we continuing this, these machinations, these, these manipulations? Uh, there's, he's obviously trying to bring something to bear. Um, and so is this some kind of master plan? What are any of the people in thrall on the island, whether magical or human, are they going to declare uh, independence in some way? So we're looking for some kind of turning point in yeah. act three and some yeah. of these threads at least starting to um, converge, if not make something you know, we're not necessarily looking for the complete tapestry yet, but we're looking in some ways for threads to converge. But yeah. I have a question for you. Yeah. On Instagram this morning, you <laughs> posted some very pensive-looking, meditative, <laughs> you know, Rodan's the thinker kind of uh-huh. uh, pictures and with a statement that you uh-huh. had thoughts and had had some kind of epiphany. I can't remember your exact words, but I am dying to know. So please, please tell us, Tam McIntosh, <laughs> what? <laughs> what Heidi, was? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break your heart, but it was yeah. actually just, like, it was a media facade. I just was feeling sort of <laughs> silly. So I took, it, people who listen to the show can be friends with me on Instagram. And I just have these three pictures that I sort of mashed together of me like having an idea while preparing for the podcast. The truth is I, I wasn't like really thunderstruck by any particular idea. I just wanted to be sort of silly. And I thought before I posted, I was like, is this the stupidest Instagram post that I've ever done? And the answer is yes. It's the dumbest Instagram post that I've ever done. Well, no, not. A, I mean, then you're winning at life. But that oh, seems really? okay. very, very Prospero-like, don't you think? Maybe it is. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should go back and change the description as like I'm having a very Prospero moment or something. That's like right. That. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. <laughs> I, I've, I've noticed um, on Instagram, I'll have, you know, people will start following me and I'll look and I'll kind of like read their bio line and I'm like, I bet you this is a close reads person because I don't recognize the name. I bet you this is a close reads person. And it's kind of nice. It's really kind of nice. Not because I, it's important to have followers, but it's just important to like, be like, oh, yeah. They're, I, I, we, when we do this podcast, Heidi, I oftentimes, we just do it by ourselves. You're in Colorado. I'm in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Or I'm in this living room with nobody else around. And it's really nice to everyone once in a while see like, oh, there's listeners out there like across like North America and there are people listening to the show. Right. Well, there are people, right? You mean you're saying it like there are people listening to the show and I'm saying, no, there are people like we are. are There's this community community of thoughtful thinkers and readers. And I'm always... Always delighted to be connected with one more thread. It's a, it's a privilege so. to be part of to be part of that tribe. It really is. Yeah, I love it, it. Is. 
It is. All right. Well, maybe just everything was thunder striking in. I mean, this isn't in, this is kind of a tricky, I know we're, we're going to close here in a minute, but I just want to acknowledge act two is sometimes surprisingly, it's sometimes surprising to people. It's difficult to wade through. There's these, in, there's these jokes mm-hmm. and you know, you're like, where's Miranda? Where's Prosper? Like where, why are we have these secondary characters? What's going on? So uh, I, I, I feel like we waded through some of that today. Um, I just can't. I mean, Act 3 is wonderful, so I'm yeah. excited for next week. Remember, everybody, that you can join the conversation online on Facebook through the Close Reads discussion group on Instagram. You can follow Heidi or myself, and we will surely follow you back. And on Twitter at Close Reads Pods. And, of course, you can always email us at podcast at gmail.com. Um, if you want to get on the email newsletter, you can sign up for that at closereads.substack.com. That's the way to stay in touch with us. Um, Heidi, it's been a pleasure. I look forward to Act 3 of The Tempest next week. So for Heidi White, for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I am Tim McIntosh. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.